You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. How's it going? Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. Our guest for this episode is Sarah Schumann. Sarah is a commercial fisherman with a bachelor's degree in marine affairs from the University of Rhode Island and a master's degree in nature, society, and environmental policy from the University of Oxford in England. Her interest in fishing really began when she was teaching in Valparaiso, Chile. Sarah explains how this interest came about and its connection to certain types of fishing here on Narragansett Bay. Sarah is the author of two books, Rhode Island's Shellfish Heritage and Ecological History, published in 2015, and Simmering the Sea, Diversity Cookery to Sustain Our Fisheries, published in 2018, which she co-authored with Kate Massery and Marie-Joelle Rocher. We mentioned Kate in this podcast as she was a previous guest when I had her on to talk about eating with the ecosystem, which was founded by Sarah. Sarah has also authored and co-authored numerous reports and peer-reviewed articles, as well as had her work appear in 41 North Magazine, EcoRI News, Commercial Fisheries News, Fisherman's Voice, and the Providence Journal, to name a few. She's also given a TED Talk presentation. Beyond her rich academic background, Sarah has fished waters as far away as Alaska to right back here in Rhode Island, both as a deckhand and an owner-operator. She built her own 19-foot wooden skiff, has written grants for Rhode Island-based fisheries and science organizations, and is fluent in Spanish, having spent five years living in Chile, Honduras, and Argentina. From 2015 to 2018, Sarah coordinated the Resilient Fisheries RI Project, which began as a climate change adaptation effort and evolved into a full-on strategic planning initiative for Rhode Island commercial fishermen. We also talk about the impact the planned offshore wind farms might have on commercial fishing in our waters. For more information on some of the things we talk about in the podcast, check out eatingwiththeecosystem.org and resilientfisheriesri.org. And I'll be sure to mention those two important links again at the end, as well as include links in the show notes. I had a great time talking with Sarah, and I hope you enjoy. Oh, and one quick note, you may hear a dog barking at about eight minutes in. I apologize for that. That's my beagle mix, Ernie. He was just letting me know that my wife had arrived home. Then later on, Sarah's phone rang and... As it was a barking ringtone, I left it in for continuity. So, it's working. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, I uh, I have to apologize. Appreciate you uh, re- rescheduling. No problem. This works out a lot better for me, actually. So. Oh, good. Yeah, you sounded, yeah, it sounded well. like you're busy. Well, thanks for doing this. I, I was reading this article, and I stumbled across your name. I said, geez, that sounds familiar. Why do I know that name? And then I remembered I had done a podcast with Kate uh, about eating with the ecosystem. And of course, I, I went back and listened to it and realized you were the founder of that. I was, yeah. Yep. Give me a little bit about your background. You're, you're a commercial fisherman. Yes. Uh, I work um, about eight months a year in uh, Point Judith, Rhode Island on a gillnet boat. Our primary target is bluefish, but we catch a little bit of whatever is swimming, some scup, uh, sea bass, dogfish is always a uh, an abundant one. Not quite right. as popular in the marketplace as we wish it was, but yeah. How did you get into that? I wasn't from a fishing family at all. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in a sort of a professional family and dropped out of college after my sophomore year and went to South America, found a job teaching uh-huh. English in the town of uh, Valparaiso, Chile. 
and was taking a walk one afternoon when I passed a little yellow building on a hill that said Confederación de Pescadores Artesanales de Chile, which means Confederation of Artisanal Fishermen of Chile. And I was dying to know more about what the heck an artisanal fisherman was. So I went inside and fell in love and the rest is history. Wow. What, what is an artisanal fisherman in that definition in that place? Well, in that place, it's skiff fishermen. It's fishermen who most of them actually don't even have a dock. They um, they drag their skiffs up on the beach and take them out each day. A lot of them down in Chile are divers for shellfish. Um, they have a number of really, uh, really not good um, shellfish species down there with good healthy markets. I mean, I haven't been down there in a while, but at the time, um, they were doing some really interesting co-management programs down there, which really piqued my interest. So co-management is when, in that case, it's uh, in Chile, they have a, a program where groups of fishermen can apply to sort of take on management of a particular geographic area that contains shellfish resources. And they work with scientists to figure out how you know what volume of resources, what biomass of resources, I should say, is contained within their area and how to manage it for a sustainable yield. It's very different from the U.S. fishing industry, but I would say it's not that different from our Narragansett Bay shellfishing industry, which is also a shellfish-based uh, skiff fleet without board motors. Very small scale, very sustainable, and and very dear to my heart as well. Right. I see when you go up to the upper bay, you see the guys cohogging with the bull rakes and that stuff. Yes. I, I wound up going down a rabbit hole. I was reading about this resilient fisheries Rhode Island. I looked at the summary, and then I found the whole document. And I actually read the whole document. I went down a bit of a, well, a rabbit thank hole. thank you. <laughs> you may be one of the only people who ever has. I, oh, no, no, no. Well, what happened it. was, what happened was I started recognizing names and faces, my customers and people I've known on, on the waterfront. And I said, oh, I know that guy. And I, I, I thought it was brilliant that you got them to talk. And after reading it and reading about all the regulations, I could see why the guys are kind of miserable. <laughs> You know, there's a lot to be miserable about right now. If you're a commercial fisherman, the one thing that jumped out at me was how many regulate. I mean, these guys always talk about regulations and being a bit maybe stifled. But what jumped out at me was how much more regulation and oversight by the government there is on commercial fishing than there is in other, say, agriculture or farming, that sort of thing. Well, it's certainly more complex. It's a much harder problem to to solve. One of the statistics that blew me away was that 90% of the seafood that you get at a market, say, is imported. Is that number correct? That's Yeah, that's often cited. Uh, I can't remember where it comes from, but yeah. I joked in a previous podcast that I was snowboarding out west and in the middle of the country and somebody offered to ask about a seafood special at a restaurant. And I said, kind of arrogantly, no, I'm from Rhode Island. I don't want to hear your seafood special in Colorado or Utah. But the really the joke's on me because just the other night I was at Stop and Shop and I noticed a lot of the seafood said caught fresh, previously fro- uh, frozen from Chile or from wherever, you know, <laughs> but nowhere near here. And I, I liked your the one of the things that I got out of the Resilient Fisheries document was that you're looking to change that to sort of drive so that when folks like myself walk into where we get our seafood, we can get something local mm-hmm. and support a local fisherman. Right. Yeah, it's important just for that connectivity, sort of the social capital, if you will, of the, you know, linking the fishermen with the places where where we live and work, that the fact that our seafood supply chains are so long 
and that they sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, what we catch has to leave the country and then come back before it gets to the consumer really sort of removes that connectivity that's so important for you know, for people understanding what it is that we do. And that's important for us to keep being able to do it because we need, um, you know, we need ports and roads and infrastructure. We need people coming into the fishing industry. We need all those things. We need, we need social license from our communities. And without, you know, that connection, it's difficult to maintain that support. So that transfer of seafood is the key. And COVID was actually uh, one of the silver linings was that COVID enabled us to reach the customer much more directly by providing seafood through dockside sales. And so that was there's been in the last couple of years sort of a revolution that took place somewhat serendipitously as a result of the pandemic. And that's a that's a really nice thing to see. I didn't realize this, but before you could only buy, I guess, lobster and crab directly from a fisherman on a boat. And then during the pandemic, there was talks about food shortages in Rhode Island, and this this came up, didn't it? It did, and Governor Raimondo at the time, um, and and DEM, which was headed by Janet Coit at the same, at the time, worked wonders for um, enabling emergency regulations to be put through to allow fin fish fishermen to also sell their catch at the dock, and that happened and worked out well. Not everybody really wants to. I'm personally one of those who has no interest in interacting with the public when I'm dirty and smelly and sweaty and exhausted at the end of the day fishing. Um, but for people who do want to put in that extra effort, you know, more power to them. And now they can. So that's great. You talked about getting new people into fishing. One of the things that was highlighted in that report was the, they called the graying of the fleet. You, you look very young you're you're one of the younger ones i take it compared to the folks i see do you see young people coming into it at all i do i see i see a fair number of really passionate motivated young people but it's much more difficult for young people to get into it than it used to be not as not so much as a crew member um which is what i am and most of the young fishermen are um but it's very difficult to work your way up there just isn't the uh it's financially difficult. Um, the value of permits has become more and more expensive. It's also difficult just from sort of a mentorship perspective. Not all captains, I'm lucky to have a really wonderful captain, but not all captains want to take young people under their wing and help them climb up the ladder. And in a large part, I think that's because a lot of them are so jaded that they don't think that it's advisable to try to become an owner and captain of your own fishing boat. That's why a lot of fishermen in what's now the um, sort of this, the the older generation of fishermen, a lot of them steered their own children away from the industry. So that generational pipeline of continuity was completely cut off. So I think that's the big problem that we see because usually jobs like fishing and farming are often passed down, um, you know, not to be sexist, but from father to son. Um, mm. I know a lot of, I know a lot of women who are taking over the their father's business or who have been brought into the business by their family. But traditionally it was from father to son. And um, with the end of that generational pipeline, and now we have to look elsewhere. And one of, there are some new pipelines that are coming up. One of them is the apprenticeship program that the Commercial Fisheries Center has been running for the last four or five years. They graduate about a dozen young people every year. Some of them make it in the industry. Some of them don't. Uh, another pipeline, interestingly, is um, fisheries observers who are data collectors who go out on fishing boats to collect data on, you know, the the different species that are caught and discarded, 
uh, what they weigh, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them, after working as an observer and seeing what it's like to be out on a boat, they you know quit the observing program and decide to work on the boat as a deckhand. And really? a lot of them are women. So I actually, I, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but it certainly <laughs> feels like there are more younger women getting into the industry than there used to be. There have always been women in the industry, but it seems like those numbers are going up, which is pretty cool. I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. That first program you spoke of, the apprenticeship program, where is that based and how does that work? Well, for one of your future podcasts, you might want to have uh, Shay Rooney and Fred Matera. They're um, the staff of the Commercial Fisheries Center, which is based at East Farm, URI okay. campus um, in Kingston. And uh, they're the ones who run that. Um, so they could obviously speak to it better than I could. Um, but I do know a lot of their their graduates are still in the industry. And, you know, these are people who don't come from a fishing background like me. And it's, I can tell you too, from experience, it's really intimidating. There's a whole culture of, of fisheries. And if you don't know, you know, you do, you're not taught in high school or college how to break into the fishing industry. And it's a completely different occupational culture. So you wouldn't even know how to get on a boat or how to prove yourself to the captain without that support. I mean, I figured it out, but it took me a very long time and it wasn't easy. So um, I think that apprenticeship programs like that are great because they give you a foot in the door. Um, right. So this program lasts, I think it's about a month. Um, they do some sort of classroom stuff, talking about what are the different gear types that that are used in Rhode Island, Um some safety training, which is really important and, you know, helps people feel like they're, you know, going to be safe when they're going out on the water. Um, and then they actually put people on boats for a few days. And if that works out, you know, sometimes those same captains will hire them or they'll tell their friends. And that, like I said, it, it gives them a foot in the door. Is this typically inshore activity or, or do they go offshore? They go offshore. They do. Yeah. They really? do. It's, it's whoever, Whoever need, I mean, for the, I would say for the, you know, when they're just sort of trying out fishing for a couple of days as part of the apprenticeship, that's probably day trips. Right. Um, but a lot of them, you know, as soon as they graduate, a lot of them have gone straight into offshore fishing and have stayed there. Wow. This just came up today. But I'm only going to bring it up because we're talking about offshore, but my dad was talking to one of our commercial fishermen customers today. Uh, yeah, I think it was yesterday. And he said something interesting. He said in the last year, all the offshore boats at the state pier have changed hands mm -hmm. in ownership. He didn't paint it in any particular light. So I don't know if it's good or bad, but just there's been a transition. Yeah, there is. And that transition, unfortunately, is going to is likely to continue. And that's uh, I mean, the fishing industry is probably going to change in many, many ways in the next decade or so it's all mm. just under going to undergo a fundamental transition you know for better or for worse and i would say most of us in the industry are very tradition bound um mm. that's part of why we become fishermen is because we we feel very strongly about carrying on this tradition so you know for those of us who love it the way it is it's a bit heartbreaking to think about that it might change um but that's life i guess um yeah but yeah i mean the, the the people who are now reaching retirement age in the fishing industry there was sort of this big like generational this big growth like in the in the 80s in the fishing industry in large part the result of the um the enactment in 1976 of the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Management and Conservation Act which invested a, a lot of um 
of money into building up the domestic fishing fleet after oh gosh i'm sorry my phone is ringing let me shut that off that's so okay can, take your time you okay just a i do but I my dog barked it. earlier <laughs> oh it's my phone actually we were talking about sort of fleet consolidation um and i was saying that there was sort of this, you know, it was enterprising young man who started fishing in the 80s. Um, there was even this program at URI that trained them really like a more of an apprenticeship program, like a two year associate's degree that wow. really gave them the tools they needed to succeed. And then in a lot of cases, there were actually loans available from, you know, U.S. federal backed loans available to get a fishing boat. And there was this big investment um, and it became a really thriving industry. But the problem is, and this is, you know, because of sort of regulatory systems that have sort of capped the number of permits, which creates, which makes them valuable and makes them expensive. Um, now, with these, now that these guys are getting ready to retire, um, they can't find any young people to sell them to, partly because we have this you know, this slowing rate of entry into the fisheries, um, as you mentioned before, the graying of the fleet, but also mm. because it's like prohibitively expensive. These offshore boats, there's no way a young person, I mean, any person could could afford to buy one of these. Um, so companies buy them up and they go uh. to the, big, the biggest ports like New Bedford. Um, and once, unfortunately, a lot of times once they consolidate, you know, at first it starts with a, a local company, which is all you know, well and good. Um, but then sooner or later it gets, they seem to be getting bought up by like international multinational corporations and really that, you know, when the ownership's not even within the region, that's, that's a different world. So oh, it's okay. not a change that a lot of us like to see. But. Yeah. I wasn't there for the conversation. The only example I knew is that one of the companies that sold off three boats a captain bought one of the boats and he's local and he remains here and oh, he's good. a, yeah. So oh, I guess excellent. of the three boats, two got sold off maybe to what you just spoke of. Yeah, and then one, the captain bought and he's, he's a local guy lives on the Island and. Oh, that's great. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So that was, he obviously, so when you say these licenses, uh, is that a Rhode Island thing? Like liquor licenses where you have to sell it to your, somebody no. to buy well, your business? Are, there are Rhode Island licenses and there are federal permits, mm. um, but it is, yeah, it's basically the same as, as what you said, a, a liquor license. Um, the Rhode Island state licenses are generally reasonable. You, oh, you can okay. actually get some, you can buy them from another Rhode Islander. I think the going rate, depending on sort of how much it comes with, some of them have a gillnet endorsement, some of them don't. Um, you know, this is maybe, this is a few years old, but the last I heard gillnet endorsement was about 30,000. Without it would be about 15. If you want just shellfish only, it's less than that. Um, wow. Then if you want to go lobstering, you also have to buy lobster trap tags on top of that. So that's a per trap tag that you have to buy um, wow. from another lobsterman. So so the costs definitely add up. But, but all of that, I mean, I do know young people um, in their 20s who have a Rhode Island multipurpose license, have, uh, you know, a couple hundred lobster trap tags and are making a real solid go of it so that's doable but when you get into the federal the federal fisheries it's really different especially you know it goes it varies on species scallop it's like millions of dollars we're talking about wow um, so that's a very lucrative lucrative fishery but um yeah one of the things that jumped out also from that report 
or from your resilience project was how with the climate changing species are migrating. I, you know, you only have to talk to one of our local lobstermen for five minutes to tell you they're up in Maine. No, now they're in Canada and the, how the regulations and what you can catch lag so far behind what's out in the water right out right now. And, you know, they say you can catch, I forgot what the example was. It was it, um, it was a it was a particular black was it a black, black fish? sea bass black sea bass it's the poster child of climate change and and it was these guys are pulling them up in droves in their nets and this the state or the federal government saying oh no no there's a limit on that and they're like limit <laughs> you know and they're, they're throwing so many back and yet it would be a, probably a, a staple dish here yeah yeah it's it's one of the most well-paying, you know, the highest ex-vessel value inshore fish that that we have in Rhode Island, and it hurts <laughs> to throw them over. Um, but it's just so difficult. And every, I mean, the thing about climate change is it, it is so different for depending on where you are. And, you know, some fishermen are just seeing like an absence of, of fish. I mean, up in Alaska, they've just had like pretty terrible salmon runs lately mm. in most of their, in most of their um, districts. But like, then here in Rhode Island, such as our fate is to sort of have too many of certain fish that we um, would love to catch, but the regulations prevent us from doing so. So I don't know if we count as winners or losers. And those are federal regulations <laughs> that say you can't land that fish, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. So some species, the fish are managed, fish are managed on a species by species basis, States manage fish within state waters, which is three miles to sh from shore, and the feds manage everything outside that. But um, states also belong to what's called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is like an interstate compact where they pool um, data and decision making um, processes so that, you know, because these fish are migratory, they a lot of the stuff we're catching in our waters in the summer is down off of Virginia this time of year. So um, the states have to sort of manage them collectively and each state gets a chunk of the pie and decides how to manage that chunk within its own waters. And some mm. of those fish are also co-managed by the federal fishery management councils. So that's an earful, but what it means is that it's not that easy to change things. And that's part of the problem. It's not really so much that the science hasn't caught up. I would say it's just really, really tricky for for the policy process to figure out how to deal with that, especially because the states down in the mid-Atlantic don't want to give that fish up. Why would they? So there's some politics involved. That Yeah, I read a bit of that in your report. And I was a little confused. It sounded like there was a, a commission that managed from the mid-Atlantic up to and including New York or maybe Connecticut, but just New York. And then we were left out of it. And I'm, I'm sitting here reading it, scratching my head saying, well, if the fish are here, how can they manage them? <laughs> right. So that's in the federal, in, in the federal okay. fishery management system. So there's the federal fishery management system manages things on a regional basis and we as Rhode Island are, were, we were assigned to the New England Fishery Management Council mm -hmm. and Connecticut was also. New York to North Carolina were assigned to the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council. 
that was back in 1976 when the regions were divvied up like that. And at that time, we might have been catching more New England fish. Um, we, our, our catches might have looked more similar to those in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine. But now we're catching the same fish they're catching in Virginia, North Carolina. I mean, a lot of our boats actually go down there for fluke. So fluke is found off our coast at certain times of the year, um, or not off our coast, I should say, but up up closer to our areas. And so mm. um, they're still they're still offshore because it's winter time. But our boats from Rhode Island will actually go and uh, catch them, and then steam all the way down to North Carolina to unload because Rhode Island will have already hit its very small quota for them. Um, but the boats can go down to North Carolina, deliver them there, get paid for them. The, the North Carolina dealers make money on off them. So everybody's happy, except that it has this sort of ridiculous carbon footprint. And, you know, the poor wow. captain and crew have to sit on the boat for a bunch of days extra, you know, out at sea in the wintertime, which isn't the safest thing to be doing. So, right. So... That's the kind of way people have have adapted because fishermen can adapt to anything. They're extremely resourceful, and that's the way that they've found. But um, it doesn't seem optimal from an efficiency standpoint. Wow! And none of these regulations really apply. It's a whole set of different regulations that would apply to, uh, say, a sport fisherman, right? That reels in a big tuna or a swordfish or something like that. And they can sell it off the dock or do whatever they want, right? If they're just a sports fisherman, they're not supposed to be selling it, right? Really? Okay. I mean, a sports fisherman is not a commercial fisherman, so they, right? They just so. they should just stand there and pose with it, and <laughs> right? They don't have, yeah. they can't legally sell it. I mean, unless they have a commercial license. Now that that actually leads me into I've talked to sport fishermen as well, and they fish off those uh, wind turbines off Block Island. And it's become a, like a, a place to go, I guess, for a handful of guys. But what I was reading in, in some of the documents that in preparing for this, it's not just the establishment of the wind turbine that could disturb the commercial fishermen. It's all the prep work that goes into it. And then, of course, you meant, they mentioned laying of cables and, and all these things that could disturb the long-term fishing uh, not just the the angler on the on the weekend, and one thing that kind of blew my mind was I didn't realize how much how much work went into planning the sighting of these things, and and how that would disturb the fishing grounds for for commercial fishermen who are here long term. Right. So this like the the geological the surveys. geological surveys that yeah. it sounded like they do a lot of poking and prodding and yeah seismic blasting and stuff like that that yeah right is is a lot of noise and vibration that's not good for anyone yeah i'd only ever heard one side of it which was the sort of the recreational angler going out there and once the thing was built saying wow it's great it's like an artificial reef yeah but it's not good for commercial fishing i don't know any commercial fisherman who who is okay with um Really, the 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 level of wind farm planning and mm. uh, development that's going on, and I mean, what what is really the scariest thing about it, in my view, is that we don't know what we're getting into. It might be fine, you know, it might mm. be fine. We have five turbines out there; they might be fine. They seem fine, but we're talking about two thousand turbines in this first go of it on the east coast alone, and who knows? That could just be the starting point. And we're talking about putting those in in the next ten years. 2,000 turbines mm. in the next 10 years when we have no idea what their ecological impact is going to be. Um, that's just 
not heeding the precautionary principle at all. I mean, I heard I was talking with one fisherman the other day who said, I wish what we would just do is put vineyard wind in, study the heck out of it. And then maybe we'd have some idea what the consequences are going to be. Because right now, you know, we have half the world thinking, oh, there won't be any consequences. And then the other half thinking, you know, this is going to be game over for the ocean and for the the fishing industry. And it could be one of those or it could be somewhere in between. But we have no idea. We're just rushing blindly into this. It's pretty scary. We do have to solve climate change. I mean, that's urgent. And that's sort of what's driving sort of some of this risk taking. Um, But there's other ways to do it. So right now I'm working with with fishermen in Rhode Island, Massachusetts and beyond to advocate for what we're calling fishery friendly climate solutions. And these are salute. We don't think offshore wind is in that category because there are, like I said, too many unknowns. Um, Mm. But, you know, rooftop solar is benign with regard to any ecosystem. I mean, it's using the built footprint that, you know, already exists. So it's not harming anyone. And there is, I don't know, I read one statistic the other day that we could be producing one terawatt of electricity through if we developed all of the viable rooftops in America with rooftop solar. One terawatt is a lot. I think currently the country uses 1.08 terawatts. So that almost gets us there um, without Mm. knocking down a single tree or bothering a single fish. Um, So that's the kind of thing that we would like to see. When these projects, like, I don't know if it's it's Cape Wind or Vineyard Wind, do they ever uh, reach out to you, to fishermen? Oh, yes. Yes. They do. Okay. They do. They do. That's part of their whole program. It's uh, it's overwhelming. I mean, there's meetings every single day. There's port hours, there's fisheries liaisons, and there's all these planning meetings, mitigation meetings, science meetings, et cetera, et cetera. You could have a team of 10 full-time people and they still wouldn't be able to go to all the meetings you know it just it's me meeting fatigue is what starts Mm. to happen so and when we have so many farms you know so many different developers out there so many different planning processes each one has to step through each step of the process there is no way and we have some very valiant fishermen um in rhode island they're they're called the fisheries advisory board um fishermen's advisory board i think but they're advisory to the coastal resources management council and it's like six or seven guys and they work their butts off night and day staying on top of this stuff and representing the fishing industry and they've been on there for for years you know since it started around 2010 um so i really have to hand it to 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 that kind of people who stays on top of all of that for the rest of the fishing industry because it's not an easy job at all and that must be hard too because if you're a commercial fisherman, you have to fish when the conditions are right. You can't that's just, right. oh, there's a meeting today. I can't go fishing. You know? Yeah. You can't only, do that. If only, that's like the biggest challenge in, in all of our lives as commercial fishermen. It's like <laughs> the meeting is on the calendar for a set date and set time. And that's just not the way our lives work at all. We're at the beck and call of mother nature. Right. Oh yeah. One of the other things in terms of the general public accessing, I keep wanting to go back to the general public accessing fresh local caught seafood. The politicians did a big thing with calamari a while ago, and they made a big deal about that. I live in Newport, and if you walk down the waterfront, you have the Newport Lobster Shack, which is great, but there's nothing else. It's just restaurants and bars. And it seems to me there used to be a real shine to people being able to walk up to a a little fish market. I, I've been to the vineyard. You know, you go to Menemsha. Just in Menemsha, there's three right there, and and you can 
buy something locally caught, how do we interact more with local seafood? Hmm. You should always ask for local seafood, whether you go to a restaurant Mm. or if you go to a seafood counter, it keeps them on their toes. We don't want it to be so easy for uh, (laughs) for the middlemen or the, uh, the retailers to just swap in some imported stuff for what's local. We want to let them know that we we want local seafood and hopefully that will drive some change. One thing that is interesting that um, when I was working on this project with Eating with the Ecosystem, um, this really cool citizen science project that we did uh, where we had, it was like a six month project and we had 86 people around New England go to their seafood markets and try to locate 52 different seafood species, um, which were randomly assigned to them each week as a way of sort of taking a, a census of how how available New England species are in the marketplace. Um, but mm. one of the really interesting things that I learned from that is that if you ask for a specific species, markets can get it for you. I mean, a specific local species. If you call up and say, I've heard that John Dory is really delicious, but I've never seen it for sale. Can you get it for me? They can. Um, oh, really? Yeah. For example, another, I mean, there are also, I mean, this is in Providence, but Fearless Fish is really sort of a leader in um, in local seafood procurement and, uh, and sort of diverse um, niche species and really celebrating the unique identity of every fish. So they are popping up. It's going to be a trend. I think it's just a matter mm. of time. Yeah, my dad did score. I think over the holidays, we had a meal with my dad and he went to Anthony's Seafood and what's fresh, you know, and they, they jumped right in and dug something out for him. Nice. So that, it that works. went well. Yeah, it works. Yeah, the pressure has to come uh, from the consumer. I see when I, when I cross over the Jamestown Bridge, there's that, I guess it's an oyster farm just south of the Jamestown Bridge mm-hmm. uh, by Dutch Harbor there. Do they fall into the same sort of regulations that commercial fishing does? No, completely different. Really? Yeah, completely different. So oysters are, man- you know, in state waters, aquaculture is, I don't even, the word managed doesn't even sound right to me. Basically, the, the areas are leased by the Coastal Resources Management. And once you have the lease, then, you know, it's it's yours, just like a farm would be. I mean, you choose what to, what to grow. And I mean, there are certain stipulations in your lease because you have to put a proposal before the CRMC, which then goes through a public process so the public can can raise any concerns that they have about, you know, use conflicts or visual impacts or whatever. But once that lease is approved, as long as you stay within, you know, the, the conditions of that lease, you're you're more like a farmer. You know, you can plant when you want and what you want and how much you want, uh, harvest it when you want. There's no limit to what you can harvest in a day. You can harvest the whole farm in a day if you could <laughs> physically manage wow. to do it. So yeah, in that way, it is completely different. I have a friend, um, Trip Wilden, who's Fox, his farm is Fox Island oysters are, um, I think his company is called Wickford Oyster Farm. The oysters are called Fox Islands. Mm. Um, and he's, he does both. He's been a lifelong commercial fisherman, um, lobsterman, d- dragger in the bay, um, you know, catching fluke and scup and squid and mantis shrimp and that stuff. And he has an oyster farm and he says that the oyster farm, working on the oyster farm is just so much more relaxing. Um, it's extremely, I've worked with him for the last few years, you know, in the falls and it's extremely repetitive it's not my cup of tea except that Hmm. i like the people i'm you know working with but other than that it's 
very monotonous. Um, That's interesting. Relaxing yeah. isn't a word I associate with commercial fishing. <laughs> yeah. But after, you know, after dealing with the trials and tribulations of, of, of commercial fishing and, you know, changes in regulations from one day to the next, there's actually some freedom in becoming a farmer and just being able mm. to decide yourself, you know, what you plant, when you harvest, all that kind of stuff. It's not, it's not for me. Like I said, I love the, I love not knowing what you're going to catch each day. You know, that's what keeps it exciting is some days you come up completely empty. You know, not everybody could deal with that, but it just makes those good days so much better. One of the things I also picked up on was um, after that resilience project, or I don't know if it was related to that. I just had a note that the relationship between fishermen and DEM may be improving. Is that, is that a step too far? No, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, DEM has, DEM has been improving. Um, I think oh, okay. We all, yeah. <laughs> we, we all really appreciate um, the changes we've seen at DEM in the last 10 years. There's been a number mm. of just like really excellent staff people in, um, in the marine fisheries division um, and beyond. And um, we feel that they are accessible, that they listen with genuine respect and curiosity for the fishing industry. They spend a lot of time on the water working with fishermen to gather data um, you mm. know, collaboratively. Um, and they have really, yeah, just really turned the page on any kind of uh, mistrust that used to be there between DEM and the commercial fishing industry. Oh, that's nice. That's good. Oh, one of the things that you've written a couple of books, haven't you? Yes, two. Yeah. Yeah. It was one. Well, one was with one was with Kate, right? Kate. That's Mastery. right. Yeah. Simmering yeah. the Sea. How did that come about? It was actually Jeremy Colley's idea. Professor Jeremy Colley at, at URI Graduate School of Oceanography. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I went into his office one day and at the time, you know, eating with the ecosystem was, was just me at that point. And, uh, I wanted to talk him into getting to applying for a grant that would allow us to hire, you know, people to figure out, you know, the science of what it would look like to balance the marketplace to what the ecosystem is producing in terms of the, the diverse mix of different species. So to make our demand basically match the supply that the ecosystem is putting out at any given moment. And I was trying to talk him into this and he basically offered me a quid pro quo. <laughs> he said, well, you know, there's this, <laughs> there's this French, I have this friend in France and she published this really neat cookbook and it has all these illustrations and it sort of tells the story of the ecosystem in this cute, whimsical way. And he showed me this book called Mitonne la Mer by Marie-Joelle Rocher. And he's like, I want to do this, but for the U.S. in English. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, and I want you to do it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, wow. so I did. And we got the grant. And, uh, and yeah, that's how we were able to hire Kate and do that um, really fantastic citizen science project um, that I mentioned earlier in the interview. And, uh, and so Simmering the Sea um, was a product of that. And it got even better because we pulled in even more people. We pulled in Riz Ahmed, who's a fantastic chef. Uh, who is now an instructor at Johnson and Wales. And he designed mm. all of the recipes for us with his students helping out, you know, doing some of the recipe testing and taste testing at Johnson and Wales. So it, it wound up being like a multi-collaborator project. And yeah, really happy with how that turned out. And is that somehow tied into, you built a boat and then that boat became pro- part of the, the Eating with the Ecosystem project? 
it, yeah. it serves sort of as a catering vessel. Yeah, an educational demo kitchen. So I built a mm. boat because I thought it would be yeah, Why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? I thought it would be cheaper to build one than to buy one. Wrong. Um, right, yeah. But <laughs> so I did that. And then I kind of got too involved with a bunch of other stuff because I always do. And the boat sort of be- sat in the driveway for too long and became unseaworthy. So at that point, I had to figure out what else to do with it. <laughs> and my aunt actually had this great idea. She's like, you know what you need is a food truck, but it's a food boat. And I'm like, huh, I think you're on to something. So we um, we did a cool fundraiser where we actually had uh, people, we invited people to donate a certain amount and they would get, you know, a, a, a fish picture, an image of, of their chosen species on the hull of the boat. And we ah. were able to raise enough money by doing that to do the renovation of the boat, um, which I, you know, we did enough, we got enough to buy the materials. I still had to do all the work. And then we hired a, um, a local artist, Joanna uh, Reed, to paint, I think they're like 75 fish images on the side of the boat. Just beautiful. Wow. And it, it wasn't easy for, for Joanna because she had to use um, Rust-Oleum because we needed like a really heavy duty exterior mm. grade paint that would cling to the side of a boat um we couldn't splurge for boat paint but we went with rust-oleum and she said it was the hardest you know the hardest viscosity uh you know the hardest thing she'd ever had to paint with but it came out just gorgeous <laughs> and so yeah so kate has taken that to a number of farmers markets pre-covid i don't think she's been able to do it lately but um right. you know, we throw a chef up there throw some fish at them People gather around, hear the stories about, you know, the marine ecosystem and the fish and where it came from and get to taste a little sample and hopefully build some, you know, some excitement about local seafood. And, and that program's likely to resume, hopefully, as COVID restrictions get you'd pulled back. You'd have to ask. You'd have to ask. Oh, all right. I don't know. Yeah. But that's great. That makes it more interesting than a food truck. Yeah. Do the chefs change? Do you have a different... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, different chef every Shame. time. Yeah, yeah, because it's really about showcasing, you know, everyone in the seafood community. I mean, showcasing the talent, um, you know, and personalities of each of these chefs, because usually the chef is in the kitchen. People don't get to know, same as like the fishermen, people don't get to know their fishermen or their chefs. We're the people who are responsible for that, you know, that beautiful piece of fish on your plate, but you rarely get mm. to talk with us and sort of learn from us. So that's, you know, that's what's really so cool about their project is that it almost is, the boat is almost a stage Right. And the chef is um, it is very much the performer. And so it's nice to give different chefs each time that that moment to shine. That all became from a good relationship with Johnson and Wales in general with restaurants. No, just in general with restaurants. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, that was enjoyable. Thank you very much for, for inviting uh, me on. Yeah, I'll send you a link when it's done. Thanks. Okay, great. Thanks. Take care. Have a good night. Have a good day. Bye. And that was my talk with Sarah Schumann. Also, I would just like to remind everyone of those links we talked about, which are eatingwiththeecosystem.org and resilientfisheriesri.org. And the only other thing I would add would be to reiterate what Sarah said. If you're into fresh seafood, wherever you buy it, make sure you ask for something locally caught and hopefully they'll get it for you. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.